Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome back to the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Heese, and here we are trying to become better Habitat managers. This episode is brought to you by our first official partner, the Packer Max line of cultipackers by Best Outdoors. I met Lincoln about a year and a half ago. I picked up a lone wolf climber tree stand from him, and that's when I found out what a great guy Lincoln is. Later on, he ended up purchasing Best Outdoors line of cultipackers. This is a business where they are cultipackers tailored for food plotters like us for wildlife. Now, they make these packers either for a tractor with a three-point hitch, or you can pull behind a tractor or an ATV like I do. So I'm going to touch on a couple things here on what is advantageous about these. They're lower cost and durable construction compared to a steel or iron version. Um, they're superior when they're filled with water and sand, superior in weight. So empty, the standard unit is less than 50 pounds. So for a guy like me who does a lot of this stuff by myself, I can haul that around, throw it over my shoulder if I have to, and throw it in the back of the, the vehicle. My, my metal one, I couldn't do that with. Now, if you fill them up with water, the standard unit comes to about 360 pounds or 600 pounds when you fill it up with sand. So a couple of advantages there. There are also some scrapers on there that knock off extra soil if you're packing in a more moist environment. Well, let me get to the different versions here. They make a standard four-foot unit, which is the unit I bought. There's also a heavy-duty version of that four-foot unit. Then there's a three-point version. Then they start making them double-wide. So you can have them eight-foot wide, toe-behind, or three-point hitch, depending on what kind of equipment you have. Uh, now, these are a very underutilized piece of equipment, a cultipacker in general, so I urge you to check them out. They're our first official sponsor. We want to do them right. 
And you can check them out at PackerMax.com. Or if you know Lincoln on Facebook, you can find them on there. But the phone number is 616-550-5779. And the best part yet, if you tell him you heard about the Packer Max on the Habitat podcast, you will get an automatic 10% off. Yes, 10% just for mentioning the podcast. So, you know what, give Lincoln a call if you are on the fence about one of these. Um, Let me know. I'll be happy to talk to you about them. And uh, really happy to be partnered up with uh, a good friend and a good company. Now, in this episode, we did things a little bit backwards, where I am actually the guest on a different podcast, the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast. These are a couple great guys out of West Michigan, um, introduced to me by a mutual friend of ours, Dustin Shrum, that they all met at the Total Archery Challenge in Northern Michigan this summer. So those guys wanted to pick my brain, which I advised them against, on uh, some habitat-related stuff for whitetail hunters who have their own property to work on. So you're going to have to listen to me mumble quite a bit on this one. I um, I tend to cover some of my goals, some of my mistakes, some of my things that I've I've done right and wrong, and uh, kind of just, just my thought on what I've learned so far as a habitat manager. Um, I do my best, and I hope you guys enjoy it, and we'll be back to a regular podcast uh, next week. So thanks again for listening, guys. Hey everybody, Adam and John here with the Bullhunter Chronicles podcast, and as this podcast is kind of taking a turn towards the elk hunting side of things, um, we're kind of bringing it back for uh, maybe you Midwesterners, not, not the Western hunters so much, uh, kind of a whitetail uh, theme for today, and today we're talking with Jared Van Hees, um, he runs the web show Outdoor Devotion, he also works alongside uh, the guys at Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, and the main focus of today's podcast, he also has just started a podcast, the Habitat Podcast, um, all about uh, building a better whitetail habitat. So we wanted to bring uh, Jared on here and kind of pick his brain on kind of smaller property type stuff. Um, for those of us, you know, you know, basically in Michigan or, you know, people who have a small piece of private, maybe they, they get to hunt, maybe they get to manage, but it's not the Drury, so it's not you know, a thousand acres or anything like that. So, um, how are you doing tonight, Jared? I'm doing great, guys. How are you? Good, good, good. So, so tell us a little bit about yourself and, and the projects that you got going right now. Oh, man, sure. Um, my name is Jared Van Hees. I live in Brighton, Michigan, originally from your neck of the woods over there on the west side, uh, Grand Haven. Okay. Uh, came over here for work. I reside here now with my wife, my my twin daughters that are four, and I just have a, a newborn baby boy, about five weeks old now, and um, just a it's a family man, and who is uh, obsessed with deer. I know uh, my wife would be the first to tell you. I think about it all the time. I talk about deer all the time. It's always on my phone or my laptop or my TV. It's just. Uh, I don't know. I got bit with a bug, I guess. But um, 
I'm in packaging sales, so I get to call on some customers that are either in the outdoor industry, which is fun, have something in common to talk to them about. That's how I met some of my good friends as well. And, uh, you know, just, just a normal guy trying to, trying to grind and, and uh, kill bigger and better deer every year. So did you grow up like with your family bow hunting or, or gun hunting or deer hunting in general? Good question. Yeah, my my dad was always a deer hunter. Uh, he always went for gun season. He was always a gun hunter. He'd go up to um, Asperia area when I was a kid. and I could never go along because I was too young. And back then you had to be, I think, uh, 14 to hunt with a gun. So, yep. you know, finally 14 came along and I got to tag along in some state land up there. And... Um, he let me uh, sit by myself after a couple of days of sitting with him and ended up shooting a spike, my my first deer. I uh, had it in the shoulder. I put it down, and uh, come to find out, it had already been shot at, and uh, the front leg was kind of taken off. So it ended up being kind of a scene when uh, the two other hunters arrived at the end of the blood trail. Oh, no. Kind of a... A dramatic thing where, you know, a little kid and his first deer, and you got these other guys telling you it's their deer, and, well, we we went home with a deer. Um, <laughs> my dad wasn't going to let that one go, and uh, ever since then, man, I've been, I've been in. I, I would say my family, they're hunters, but they're not near, near as obsessed as I am. They're, they're into it for sure, and they're getting more into it as far, or while I get further into it, but. I think I have uh, more of a problem, if you will, than they do. <laughs> yeah, I think that seems to be the stereotypical, or the, I mean, the, the the kind of the way that it goes is for most people around here, and maybe the even stereotype of Michigan is that it is the gun season, the Escanaba in the moonlight, the Thirty Point Buck, the. the, the yeah, that's a great movie, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've got property right up there near Escanaba, so it kind of rings a little bit true here and there um, for certain, but but yeah, I think that that's kind of like the way that it, it goes, and it's funny that story, because like my first year, first morning, I was sitting 100 yards from my dad, and uh, I shot a spike, you know, just after I got done taking a dump, and I thought the morning was going to be <laughs> over, so, and and all of a sudden, here comes the spike, and but, you know, I didn't have any sort of, uh, sort of an issue, um, and I, I was thinking about that today, and uh, not that in particular, but what you said about the further that you get into it, the further your family gets into it. And I think the same has happened with me. And I was thinking about that with John because he, he was up at the bow shop and all of a sudden his boy, you know, wants to get a new bow. It's time to get a new bow. He needs to get kind of right. like the equipment. And uh, his daughter was saying how she wanted to go to the river cleanup for BHA and kind of do that sort of thing. So, um, you know, you having the two young kids, and I've or three young kids now, and I've got a, a two and a half year old daughter, and you know, I'm posting videos of her elk calling and her with her stuffed animal and her bow, and you know, it, it is really a, a a family thing that's pretty contagious once you're that passionate about it. I mean, when you love something, it's hard not to to pass that on to to everybody else. So, is that kind of like how the outdoor devotion thing spurned or was that an idea like 
later on, or is it something that you've been working on since, like, when we talked to the Death by guy, you know, Ben, he said he'd been drawing that logo since he was 12 years old or what, whatever. So how did that whole thing come about? Yeah, that's, that's funny. Uh, when I was a kid, you know, and, and I couldn't go hunting with my dad, I, I had these real true Monster Bucks videos, right, like on, on VHS. I don't know what number they were, maybe like real tree nine or 12. I mean, I'm talking way back when. And ever, you know, I just, my dream was I want to be on TV and, and be a hunter, you know. And and now I kind of laugh at that because I don't really find myself in the same category as, as uh, some of the guys down there, but some of them are also very respectable, knowledgeable guys. So we can get into that uh, on a whole nother conversation. But <laughs> I... Uh, it's just kind of always what I wanted to do. Um, then I met some of the guys from Michigan Whitetail Pursuit at a trade show in Novi a long time ago. And a friend of mine and I both bought cameras, camera arms, and said, you know, we want to try to get on their DVDs and whatnot. Well, it took me like three years to, to um, successfully film a harvest. Um, it's a lot harder than it looks when you're doing it by yourself. We, we do a lot of self-filming. And so it, finally I got a nice eight-point on film, and and um, Michigan Out of Doors actually picked it up and, and aired it on their show, so that was pretty cool. And once that happened, and I had three years' worth of other footage, and so did three, four of my buddies, and we're like, you know what? Let's just do something with this. We're got it all sitting on our hard drives, or our laptops crash, this stuff's going to go by, let's let's do something with it, let's make a video, or, you know, it's kind of intimidating, this market, there's tons of people that film their hunts, so we're kind of intimidated to even jump into it, but we just, we did it, we built a website, started uh, editing our hunts together, and that's where uh, Outdoor Devotion was born back in um, fall of 2014, if I remember correctly, so... It's exactly what it sounds like. Uh, we're we're devoted to the outdoors. It's it's all we think about. It's what, where we want our kids to be and grow up in. Uh, a lot of our guys, uh, Dustin's already got his son shooting a buck on film last fall. It's pretty awesome. Um, it's just it's exactly what we always talk about and think about, and we want to kind of hold on to those memories. So. The best way to do that is to film it, and you can watch it over and over and over again, which um, works out great. <laughs> so it's kind of how we got into that. Um, since then, we've, we've grown our team a little bit. We have uh, we're up to 12 guys now who um, are part of the OD team, and we, we filmed some fishing trips and some other stuff uh, as well, but our main focus would be whitetail hunting in Michigan. Um, by regular guys with regular equipment on, you know, average show farms and, and properties. Uh, we do go out of state every chance we get. It's not that often with young kids, but, you know, I try to get down to Ohio or, or somewhere when I can. Uh, I know you guys do that as well. So uh, we that would be kind of an, an exception, but we have some good videos on uh, Nebraska and Missouri and Ohio hunts as well. So. It's just something we do now. It's 
it's a pain in the butt to haul all that stuff in the field with you, but if you don't bring the camera, you kind of feel naked too. So just become part of what we do. And then how did that turn into the the habitat piece of it? Okay, so for however many years now, I've been sharing property with uh, with my friends, with with people I've I don't know. And when I say that, is I've banged on doors and gotten permission on most of my pieces that I hunt, um, and just things would happen and the honey would kind of go down the drain in terms of overpressure. Um, just, just I wasn't on the same page as a lot of the people I was hunting with. And finally, I was lucky enough to save up for a couple of years and buy my own little piece of heaven. Um, I own 15 acres now in northwest Jackson County. And while I was looking for that piece of property for two or three years, I browsed the internet and I was on the QDMA forums. So used to have forums that were just loaded with habitat information. And there's something called a, a land tour where a guy would post up like an aerial of his property, say, hey, this is my 40. This is what I want to do to it. And he just go. it's like a diary almost with pictures and journal entries about the habitat work he did. And I was just fascinated by these land tours. I mean, I would follow along every single night on my phone just look at these different properties and dream about maybe someday being able to do that and, and finally I, I got the property and um i really had no idea what to do so all that reading and everything I, I retained some of the information but i figured well i might as well keep diving into the information part of this and um see what I can figure out and, and interview or, or call a bunch of people that I may be connected with on Facebook, et cetera, and thought, you know what, let's just record it so I don't forget it, and uh, maybe somebody else out there is in the same boat I am trying to learn on what they can do to their land, uh, big or small. And so I, I, I'm a big podcaster. Uh, well, inter- I mean, I guess I listen to a lot of them, I should say. I've been doing it for years now since I'm in sales. I'm on the road all the time, and that's pretty much all I do is just listen. So I thought, well, let's maybe let's start one of those and see what happens. So that's kind of how it led into that. Just uh, I had the itch to perform and learn about the habitat work, and then I always enjoyed podcasts. and It's kind of the way the world's going. So decided to try to fire one of those up, which, as maybe you figured out, it's not as easy as it seems, <laughs> but... After multiple hours of research, we figured it out. Yeah, you know, you think you can anybody can do a podcast. You can just record it on your iPhone, right? <laughs> and then what? Then what do you do with that? So you got to have a website. You got to have all this other stuff. Yeah, uh, we've totally went down that road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it uh, it seems so simple, and then uh, you try to get somebody who's located in location A talk to you who's in location B and, and stream it all together and whatnot. But I, I guess the whole goal is just I want to selfishly I want to learn and I'm going to probably forget some of it along the way so I might as well record it and try to throw it out there for everybody else to learn as well. And it's kind of turned into more of let, let's cover these things that a lot of guys like myself who are just getting into this stuff want to know. And so we're asking simple questions. I mean, some habitat gurus may 
laugh and think, man, these guys don't know what they're talking about, which is true sometimes. I mean, we don't, but we ask these people and we, we ask stupid questions and have them explain it in detail and um, it makes a lot of sense. So I think we're connecting with a lot of guys who might want to buy this stuff on their property but don't know where to start and that's kind of where it where it started connecting with with me is maybe beginner habitat or, or rookie habitat managers um you know learning more and more so that's what we're trying to do yeah so that's perfect so for uh, the guy you know much like yourself or or i would say where where i grew up and i'd say around here if you owned a piece of property it was 5, 10, maybe 15 acres. If you owned 40 acres, it was a hay field of some sort, at least where right. I lived. Right. You know, there were there was a barn and there were cows and horses or, or something like that, but it wasn't it wasn't any sort of uh, anything that you would see on TV or, you know, one of these whitetail property type type things. So, um in that vein, kind of what you're talking about for the guy that's starting out or for the guy that has that 10-acre, 15-acre property. Yourself, what have you found to be the most important aspect of that piece of property? That piece of property is probably not going to hold deer. Are you trying on your 15 acres to provide, you know, good bedding, good browse, and food? Or are you saying, well, I just want to have them bed here and make sure they move through, or we're going to put, we're going to make it a destination food source? Or are you trying to put all of that stuff you know, for the the small property guy, what's the the most important when you're when you're looking at it from, like the aerial photos there, when you were looking for your property, what were you looking for? No, uh, great question. Now, so I guess to start, when I was looking for property, um, I looked at everything for like I said, two or three years, and the piece I found, I had to be able to access it from the east side of the property. Normally, we have a predominant west wind, right? So, if the road is on the, the west side of the property, and you got a west wind, as soon as you park your car, your sun's blown into the property. And on a property that small, it really little things like that really do matter. So, I had to find a, a property I could get to from the east side and walk west into the property. So I, found, I finally found this piece. Um, it was set up just for that. And what the realtor didn't really do is is market the property, um, well, first of all, very well at all. Second of all, not for hunting. Um, so it sat for like two, three, four weeks without, you know, it, and, and some other farms that I had seen had, would sell in a day or two if they were really nice. So what I did is I found this property. And why is this property sitting here? And I zoomed out. So back to your point about the aerial, I zoomed way out on Google Maps. And what do you know? There's a 300-acre swamp on the west side of the property. Well, that nowhere in the ad or the pictures was that swamp ever mentioned. And to me, in Michigan, these crazy pressured deer that we all hunt, you need a swamp, or you should, or you need cover. So that that got me excited there. Um, once I knew that, there was no point in me trying to build bedding. First of all, a deer is not going to stay on 15 acres ever. Um, 
you can build some nice beds, you can build some bedding cover, and they may bed there, but they're not going to stay there. You can get them to bed there. That, that's good. That's a good thing. Um, I do have some deer bedding on my property, uh, but they're more towards the swamp, towards the other bedding. So I kind of didn't focus on bedding as much. What I would recommend, first of all, is you need to see what's around you. So I had a swamp to my west, and there, there's no other farmland within a mile. So, and that's kind of rare for that area of the, the state, but there were no crop fields within a mile of my property. So I thought food, number one. So what I did is I, I went in there and I kind of did it a little backwards. Um, I just went in there and found an open area and started mowing stuff down. What I wish I would have done is, is left all the tall brush up and kind of mowed through it and around it and kind of intertwined with it. But um, it doesn't really matter now since it's all cut down. So I have a couple nice food plots in there now, and I think when I walk the property in February, that, that post-season scouting where the woods still looks like it does in November, you can see where the trails are going through. You can see where the scrapes were, where the rubs were. I, I wrote all that down. I drew it on a map. I drew every deer trail on that property on a map. And uh, then again, back to your point about the aerial look, you, you zoom back out and you take a look at that drawing I made, and you can see all the trails just move through the property in kind of a, I think it was a southwest and northeast direction. So that told me it's a, it's a transitional property. You just move through there. Um, so, again, I wasn't trying to build bedding there if they're just going to move through it. I would focus on making sure they move through that property if they're going to move through that area and um, put some food there that they would like and make sure that food is different than maybe what your neighbors would plant or if there's corn and beans nearby, you know, plant something a little bit different as well. So make it diverse. And when you're talking about that, the brush, why would you have left that up in hindsight? So for a guy that's, you know, maybe just saying, okay, well, I've got this area. I'm just going to mow it down. Looking back on it, why would you have left that up? Yeah, so our pressured deer, you're going to hear me say that a lot, um, they don't like to walk out in open areas here in Michigan. Uh, you may get a young buck or some does to walk out in a cut cornfield, but that mature buck's going to wait till dark before he enters that field most of the time. Now, if you can keep four, five, six-foot cover on both sides of him or within one jump of the deer, say he needs to boogie, he can jump one or two bounds and he's in cover, that's when they feel the most safe. So what I, I had um, about five or six-foot tall uh, wild raspberry and, and um, some other brush, I'm not even sure what it was, that surrounds the food pots now, but what I wish I would have done is make four or five little tiny eighth of an acre, sixteenth of an acre plots connected with little trails to each one of them, um, so that if there's a deer on one edge of the property, he cannot see all the way across the plot to the other edge. He has to seek through there, through each area, hopefully by my tree stand and check each one of them out for a doe instead of just holding in the cover and looking all the way across. So 
what I've done to combat that is I'll plant a screen um, of Egyptian wheat, sorghum. Uh, you can use a miscanthus grass or what I'm using now are hybrid willows. You, you kind of break up the sight line of a deer. So you want them to be able to see short distances so they have to keep moving to cover the whole ground. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And so when you're planting something that the neighbors don't have or something like that, how are you choosing like what to what to plant at what time of the year? So are things that I mean, are you planting a spring planting and a fall planting? Are you planting just kill plots, you know, in the fall that that are going to be there? I mean, on a small property like that, ultimately you want the deer to be there when you're there, but is it beneficial even just to turn up the ground or or whatever in the spring? Or are you just focusing on hunting season late, you know, this time of year, August? Now that I've hunted for a year, I know that I don't have any good bucks that show up until late October or November. I mean, they're not there at all right now, all summer. But that being said, I keep the does happy. So most of my plots I would call kill plots, if you will, just because it's such a small property. I mean, technically... a you want a destination food source, and then you have these little micro-kill plots that you'd hunt as the deer moves from its bedding to the destination food, which is your main large food source. Well, mine's not, my main food source is not very big, so it kind of falls under both uh, the main food source and a uh, kill plot. What I chose there was based on what the soil said and what I thought would be a diverse food plot, and um, I didn't think my neighbors were doing. So I, I met my neighbors. I talked to them all. I think one guy had alfalfa in um, and some clover. The other guy, he didn't plant anything, or maybe he had actually maybe he had clover for three, four years in a row. Um, so I thought, all right, well, I could throw some clover in there, but I'm gonna do something a little bit different. I ended up choosing brassicas for one plot, clover for second plot and then um, oats, winter peas for a third plot and what that did is it just gave me a bunch of diversity so they didn't like the clover, maybe they liked one of the other two or, or vice versa um, I kind of thought that since I had a transitional piece that they'll go through there and if the food's good maybe it'll slow them down a little bit before, before they move on and uh, just you know that, and, and based on the the soil test, I figured those would those would work. And actually, it, they were in there every single day. I couldn't have wrote the script any better, to be honest with you. I think it was dumb luck. <laughs> and what is the is is there like a what's your smallest size plot? I mean, is there is there a plot that's too small? So like if you if I've got you know only one stand of woods to hunt, and maybe it's two or three acres on this thing is that too small to put in a 30 by 30 food plot is it not is it not going to be worth it or i mean is there like any sort of minimum size or we'd say you know maybe that's not the best best thing to do no i i wouldn't say there's a minimum um if you're not trying you know what are you doing so if you have a 30 by 30 and clear it out throw some seed down um get it working in the ground just make sure you have sunlight, but I don't think 
there's anything I can do, and not just in habitat work, but in hunting, whether it's scent management or or mock scrapes or, or what have you, there's anything I can do to up my odds, I'm going to do it. These bucks are so hard to kill here. If there's one more thing I can lean my way, I'm going to do it. So a little a little tiny 30 by 30, I just made one of those uh, a couple weeks ago. It's right next to one of my tree stands, and I figure, hey, maybe if they're going to come through here, they'll come through right here versus 80 yards away and take a bite or two. And I'll give me enough time to slip an arrow in there, you know? Sure. And you're saying the, you know, go in there, clear it out, uh, throw some seed down or whatever. Let's say, I mean, so like I, we've got a property that we don't do any food plots or anything on really um, that's seven hours away. So I don't have time to go up there, round up, wait for it to die, mow it down, turn it up, come back in two weeks. Uh, that sort of thing. Um, so what's the, like, if you if you had just a, one piece of property, you were going to do one thing to it before you put your seed down or whatever. I mean, what's the most important step in all of this? Because I think the one thing that at least has been my experience, no matter how much time I put into it or thought process, is it never really grows like I wanted to or it never kind of works out the way I thought it would. So when you put in work or, you know, hours and drive time and all that stuff and then you get nothing to grow or it gets burned up in the sun or things like that, it's really discouraging. So for guys that are just starting out, what's the most important set of steps or or, or where should they begin? Yeah, well, you can't predict Mother Nature. Um, you're, things are going to go wrong. It's part of the game. I mean, you, you, you're going to try and it's going to fail. You're going to go, darn it, what did I even waste my time for? But you can learn from that. So if you don't have an option to get up there twice in a row, for you in, in particular, I would try to turn the ground over with a disc or, or something. Um, but for people who can kind of get there, the first thing I would do is mow an area down, mow brush, weeds, um, whatever, down. And what that does is, is you're, you're designating an area, now it's going to be your food plot. And then a week to ten days later, maybe two weeks, all that brush that's there is going to try to shoot back up. You know, it's telling itself, I was just mowed, i gotta, I got to regrow. So it's going to shoot back up like crazy. And right then is when you hit it with Roundup, or uh, glyphosate, generic term for Roundup. That is when the plant is taking out as much as it can in terms of outside nutrients, and you're going to fill it with Roundup, and it's going to kill it. And what you're trying to do with that is just get seed-to-soil contact. That's the most important part, in my opinion. If you have a, a bunch of green, growing stuff there, and you try to seed it, you're going to be competing with all these established plants, which is going to be impossible. So you want to kill them. You want to get it just dirt. I mean, there can be some, some thatch and some mulch or whatever, if you will, on top, but you want to get it to where your crop is the only thing that's that's trying to grow there. It's the only it's, its own competition, if you will. And once it hits the dirt, you want to make sure it's packed to the dirt. 
that's something that took me a few years to learn. Um, we never used the call to factor or or anything like that the first couple of years, and just wouldn't grow very well. But if you can pack down the soil with your ATV tires, or um, if you're in a small area, shoot, use your boots. Um, use a cultivator, whatever you can do after you spray and kill it all. Then you pack the soil, throw out some seeds so you're laying on a firm seed bed. Your seeds are hitting firm ground. And then you pack it again. So you're pushing the seeds into the dirt. They're not just sitting on fluffy, loose dirt from a rototiller. They're packed into hard dirt. That is the seed-to-soil contact you need. That's going to help them establish better roots and shoot out of the ground much quicker and stronger. So the most important part, I think, is the seed-to-soil contact. But you also need sunlight. I mean, there are some things that are grow in the shade. But from what I've learned, if you can open up the canopy, that's also going to be your, your best bet. There's some shade tolerant mixes out there, but you can get good seed-to-soil contact, kill off the vegetation, and um, get some sunlight in there. That would be what I'd recommend. Now, a buddy of mine who we interviewed on my podcast, the Habitat Podcast, Jake Ewinger, he's a, a real habitat guru from southern Michigan. He just put up a video the other day um, where you go and you mow, you spray it, and then you broadcast a seed once all the vegetation is dead and then you just wait for rain and what the rain does a couple heavy rainfalls will pound that seed into the dirt for you so maybe that's something to think about when you're going all the way up north adam um you know a smaller seed works best for that a, a clover or a brassica you know not not like a um like a big uh buckwheat seed or uh like a, like a winter pea or something like that was a little bit big. But if you mow and spray and then just overseed on the ground, let the rain drive it in, that's a that's a pretty simple way to do it there. So you you had mentioned earlier just a few minutes ago about uh, you tested your soil. How do you go about that for people that don't know? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. I uh, We work with a company out of Spring Lake, Michigan called Killer Food Plots. I don't know if you guys know Nick Percy at all. Great, great guy, great product. Um, can't say enough good things about him. What he'll do is he'll send you a kit, and what you do is you go to your, so you have a half-acre food plot. You want to go out and dig up a core sample, if you will, like uh, like they do on you know Wicked Tuna, shove the core sample in the fish and pull it out. You want to do that to your soil. And you want to take, I don't know, four or five, ten, doesn't really matter, but you want to get enough of them. Um, core samples out of your food plot and you want to make sure you're not getting the top layer with the grass and the roots you want to go just below that Um, and you want to get that that soil down there where your roots are going to end up and what you do is you mix all that up you let it dry out and then you put it in a bag and send it into their lab and uh, you tell them what kind of crop you want to grow there and what they'll do is they'll send you a recommendation within a few days on all right here's your soil here's what you have for instance, mine, my soil is pretty terrible, lacking a lot of lime. The pH is low. My potassium is high, but everything else is, is low. So I would recommend everybody do a soil sample. And, and what that does is it tells you how you can amend your soil to make it perfect, to make it neutral with the pH and up to par on, on all the other items um, 
on that test. And what that does is that helps your your clover or your brassica or whatever you plant. That helps the plant accept the nutrients and take up nutrients in the most efficient way. You, you can still grow stuff without having great soil. I, I did it, and the deer liked it. But if you can make that soil perfect and, and amend it, uh, your plants will be a lot healthier. They'll produce more tonnage. Everything will be better and, and working better for you. Well, we have a video on how to do that over on Outdoor Devotion YouTube. There's a video on how to take soil samples for anybody who, who might wonder how. Okay. Does it go through um, what to do when you get the soil sample back or what it looks like? I've looked on the sides of the, these uh, seed bags, and it says this, this, or this. I mean, does it say... And even just looking at the side of a, a fertilizer bag where it says you got this, 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 or this, when you get that soil sample back, does it say this is what you this is what you need in terms of nitrogen, phosphorus, lime? This would be a good product for you. I mean, is there a, a recommendation there, or do you need like a degree in like chemistry or chemical engineering <laughs> to read? Like you just get the results back, and then you have to figure it out on your own. Oh no, I. Uh... I think they do spell out what you need on the soil test results, but I'll be the first to tell you I don't know what the heck I was looking at. <laughs> so, I mean, I'll be honest with you. I I got it and said, okay, you need to add two tons of lime to your soil to make it a perfect pH. I'm thinking, two tons? How the heck am I going to get two tons of lime <laughs> back to my half-acre food plot? I can't even really get a vehicle to. I'm like, this uh, I don't know what to do. So it is a little intimidating, but you just need to try. You just need to get back there, throw some as much lime as you can out um, year after year after year, and just, you know, habitat work is a never-ending uh, race. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. Um, it's going to take years to, to get that upright. But, I mean, kind of the, the cheater's way, I just called Nick. Killer food pots, and I'm not even trying to shamelessly plug him. He, the guy, knows everything about it. So he just, we actually had him on our podcast for, uh, I think it's episode number three. He dove into everything you need to know about it, and I still didn't get it, so I had to listen to it again. But um, perfect. Yeah, it, it's kind of, it is a little bit intimidating, but people should really do it because if you don't do it, you throw all the seed out there that costs fifty to a hundred dollars depending on your plot size, you throw all this fertilizer out there, and if the pH isn't right or it's lacking in certain nutrients, sometimes the deer don't like it. Sometimes it's bitter. Sometimes it doesn't grow very well. And then you're just throwing money down the toilet. Right. Okay. So you might as well try it and try to learn. And uh, I guess I'm the first to tell you, I don't know what I was looking at, but it's starting to make more sense the further you get into it. So, like, what tools now? Do you, I mean, you're just saying you're going back to half-acre plot and you know, it's way back in. What tools do you have, like, to uh, assist in that? Yeah, so our setup is uh, pretty hillbilly. Um, we have a, I guess I'll take you back before we had a, a four-wheeler. I had a a hand seeder, uh, like a bag seeder, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, I had a hand stickle. I believe the term is the one that you swing and it cuts the vegetation. Oh, yeah. um, that's that's how I started. I started 
swinging that, clearing it out. I started with a rake and uh, some seed. Um, that worked, but if you can afford to to either use a lawn tractor or um, a little ATV and, and find a garden disc or, or something like that, now what I do is I have a, a backpack sprayer. I'll fill it with the glyphosate or the Roundup, if you will. I'll spend hours walking around spraying that because it's just a small little sprayer. And then we found a little disc on Craigslist that you pull behind a garden tractor that's three foot wide. Um, I actually have to stand on it while my buddy drives the four-wheeler sometimes because the weight is so light, doesn't really dig in. But if you can strap some weight to it or I stand on it, it digs in pretty well. Um, like I said, it's a... You'd laugh if you just watched us out there, but it's um, the disc turns it up pretty good, and um, after it's sprayed, the ground breaks up a lot easier than if you didn't spray, so that helps. And then I still use that bag spreader, and um, I I, use, I also use a cultipacker now uh, to, to pack the, the soil down to give it a firm seed bed, like I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've tried before without one. But I really recommend a cultivator. I think that's the ticket we were missing for the first couple of years, just to get that that firm seed to soil contact. When you're uh, doing this planting and, and stuff like that, what are you planting when? Or is there things that are better to plant in the spring versus the fall? I know that there's, I know I know that there are some things that you know, get sweeter after the first frost and, and things like that. Uh, but when are you planting those for that thing and, and what things do that? I don't know what they are. I just know that that's what I've I've heard and, and those are the things that, that people look for in their fall plots. Sure. I've only planted fall plots uh, in the past uh, besides this year. This year I did a little frost seeding. But for the for the spring plots, I think a lot of guys plant them because the soil still has moisture in it in May. Um, late April, if you can get in there, but uh, usually it's May due to the soil temperature. And then what that does is that gives your your plot all summer to grow. So some of these guys who, who plant their clover or their brassicas, I mean, they'll have gigantic brassicas by the time fall gets there. Um, the other risk is if you have a drought like we kind of do right now, uh, some of those plots are probably not looking very good. So it's kind of a risk you take, but you can also just till them under again in August and start fresh. So what I do is I'll, I'll go in in, in April while, or maybe late March, early April, while the ground is still freezing at night and then thawing out during the day. And I'll do what they call frost seeding. You throw out a smaller seed, a clover. Uh, I did clover and chicory this year. Just throw it out on the ground, on the snow even. And as that ground freezes and thaws and freezes and thaws, uh, that water brings the seed down into the soil. And I'll tell you what, I'm blown away by how my clover looks from three months ago when I was frost seeding it. It's, it's ridiculous. And I've never done it before, but it worked. And, and the planting in the fall is what we normally do. We'll go in there the first, and eh, probably the second, third week in August, even Labor Day we've done it. And that's when we'll plant our fall plots. 
in the fall plots, when are you, what's the time frame to plant those, and when are you looking for, like, the biggest type growth? And then one of the things I wanted to ask you about, what's the, because it, it seems the, like the most counterintuitive thing to me, but you've put, let's say, like, your your spring plot there. You've got your clover and your chicory coming through, and it's booming, going gangbusters. It looks really great. And then you're supposed to go through and mow it, and that just seems like the most ridiculous thing. You put all this work into getting this great-looking food plot, and then now you have to go mow it down again. Now what's what's the? I would like to know why they do that. Yeah, no, it's it's, uh, it's not a good question. Uh, the, the reason for that is deer like young browse, young plants. Uh, when when there's a seedling, it's much more tender than a four-foot-tall version of the same plant, right? So if you have something just popping out of the ground, you can probably think of an example, maybe a little weed in your yard that pops up, is a little neon green-looking thing that it's just, you know, three, four inches tall. Those are real tender and easy to digest for the deer versus something that's four-foot-tall, has a real thicker, almost a bark to it, and um, just a different taste even. So what you do with that clover, um, you mow that, to keep it young, to keep the growth young for the deer. It's more attractive that way. You don't mow every sort of food plot or every kind of food plot. You don't mow brassicas. You don't mow oats as far as I know. At least I don't. Um, I only know that you mow clover because, like I said, it keeps that growth young. It keeps it from reseeding. Once clover gets too tall, it kind of flowers out and heads out, which you kind of want it to. You want it to reseed. Then, you, you know, it's kind of seeding for you. But then you want to mow it down again so it's more attractive to the deer. And lastly, what that does, if you have any sort of weeds that grow up, broadleaf weeds in your food plot, which you'll get, mowing keeps those in check. It's one of the best ways to control weeds. So you can you can spray um, a broadleaf herbicide, uh, maybe a grass-type, a rest mash or something, or clethodome, I think is the, the term for that. You can spray that on your clover as well, and it might kill the grasses that are growing up through your clover, but mowing um, is a cheaper, easier way to, to control a lot of those weeds. And, and I just mowed one of my clover plots for the first time, I, the, the one that wasn't frost-seeded, the one I planted last fall. My clover was like three foot tall, and all the ryegrass was four or five foot tall, and I'm, we mowed all the, mowed the whole thing. So mowed the clover, mowed the ryegrass, and now what I have is just like a lush clover coming through. That, that ryegrass, everything else is all gone. It's only clover now. It looks, it looks really nice. So a couple advantages of mowing there for you. I understand you, you know, you kind of have that, that mindset. You spend all this time and money. You don't want to cut it down, but in that case, it, it helps. And the exclusion fence, what you're talking about, I haven't done that yet. I probably should. Um, that'll just monitor your browse pressure. And what I mean by that is you'll 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 know how often the deer are hitting your food plots and how much you're eating. All you do is take a piece of wire fencing, put it, you know, make it a circle like a cage, and cage in a little bit of your food plot. And what that'll show you is if the deer are keeping your food plot mowed down to the ground by eating it all the time, with stuff in the cage is growing four or five, six inches tall, and the rest is, you know, down to the dirt. You can, you can learn a few things by that. You can learn 
Maybe I have too many deer. Maybe I need to plant some more food around here since there apparently isn't enough. Um, you know, just things like that that you can learn from an exclusion fence. And then what, like I said, what, what's the time frame for your fall plots and what are you putting in and what things grow best in the fall and what are you looking for um, through that, the hunting season? Sure. Um, so I think what a lot of people want to plant in the fall um, or why they plant in the fall is because you can get a little bit more rainfall coming in and your, your growth is, is younger and, and the crop will be more appealing to a deer when you plant in the fall. And when we plant is usually second week in August until Labor Day, somewhere in that little gap there. Um, you might be able to, to go a little bit ahead of that, but it's all based on rain. We kind of watch the weather a lot and then see when a nice big storm's coming and try to get out there and do it a day or two before that. And we've planted a number of things in the fall. Um, I think about everything you can plant in the fall that I know of, except for like corn and beans, those obviously have a longer uh, maturity rate, so you don't want to plant those, you know, in the spring. But we plant clover, rye, oats, peas, brassicas. Um, I can't think what else. There's, there's a lot of different things you can plant in the fall. It's really, I don't know of a lot of things you can't plant. I just know that um, when you do it that way, you get some good early growth, you know, coming through September, and then boom, it's fall season, right? And you have this fresh, young, green patch of of clover or, or oats or rye that, that you're hunting over now that's it's not mature. It's very tasty to the deer, and, and they love it. Um, it can be very, very attractive depending on where you're at. Yeah, we had a li- listener ask about uh, planting buckwheat in the fall, you know, versus in the spring. Do you have any uh, insight on that? You know, I've never used buckwheat, um, but some of the mixes I've seen do have a lot of it in there. I know that buckwheat is very good for building your soil up. So, I th- actually, I think I should be using it because my soil is very sandy. And so what you would do is you'd plant that in the spring, grow a nice nice uh, field of it all summer, and then till it under right before fall. And that would be what we call like a green manure if you will, um, all that great, great plant breaking down, you know, it's your fertilizer for you. So if you did that every year, you're building your soil up, you're you're building organic matter up, um, and and that's just free fertilizer for your your fall planting. Now, I don't know, what I've read on buckwheat, some deer like it, some deer don't, I would have no problem planting it. I would... But what I would do is I would plant it with other things. I wouldn't just do buckwheat. I would I would diversify. I would throw in some other things in there, maybe, maybe some brassicas, some oats. Um, I would definitely mix it up and not just rely on, on one thing, no matter what plot I'm planting. But as for the fall and the spring plot, I've heard of guys planting buckwheat in the fall. Um, I just, I've never done it, so I'd hate to really tell you it's right or wrong okay and so we've been doing a lot of talking here about the the food plots because i think that that's one of the big topics you know that 
especially with Michigan potentially going to no bait, and there's a lot of different states out there that have no baiting. So, um, you know, being able to draw deer in like that, people are always looking for some sort of an edge or an advantage. Um, But the the other aspects of habitat with the bedding and things like that, one of the other topics that gets brought up a lot is hinge cutting. So um, are you doing any hinge cutting, and, and why are people, what are they using that for? Okay, so I haven't done a lot of it yet, to be honest with you, but I am all about it. Um, from all the research I've done and all the people I've talked to on the Habitat podcast, everybody is, it, it, it makes sense. So what what a hinge cut is, for those who don't know, it's when you cut a tree about, oh, I don't know, 60% of the way through, maybe 70 or 80% of the way through, if it'll take, and you try to dip the tree over or fell the tree without it breaking off. So normally you cut a tree all the way through, it tips over, it breaks off of the stump, and, you know, the tree's dead. On the hinge cut, you want to keep the stump connected to the top part of the tree that you just tipped over. So you only cut it, like I said, two-thirds of the way through and tip it over. And what that does is a couple things. That opens up the canopy in the woods, first of all, most importantly. So all of our woods has a, a native seed bank in the, in the dirt. You may not know that, but if you open up the canopy and the sunlight hits the dirt in your woods, there are seeds in that dirt that are going to just take off. And it's all good stuff. It's all native stuff most of the time. So... Just opening up that canopy alone is going to make all these nice weeds and forbs and deer food grow in these areas that get sunlight now. If, you, if you've ever been in a, a forest that was logged or a select cut, you'll notice that has a lot of new underbrush or understory now that's grown up. That's all good, good stuff in my opinion. And so hinge cutting, you're taking that top crown canopy of the tree and you're dropping it down. Secondly... Since the tree is still alive, all the leaves and branches and canopy, all that now is at a deer's level, right? Before that, the deer can never reach over four or five foot up the tree. So now you're taking all those leaves that you like to eat and putting them on the ground. That's a ton more food right there. Um, thirdly, that's cover. So now you have a tree laying on its side, which is a total visual block. A deer cannot see past that um, as it's growing up. So if you do a couple of hinge cuts, it's, it's cover. The deer feels safe when there's cover like that. A, a goal that I've always heard is you don't want to be able to see more than 30 or 40 yards in your woods in the wintertime when there's no leaves. So I don't know about you guys, but where I hunt, even in the wintertime, you can see pretty far. So it's not thick enough. Um, and then lastly, those, those trees that are now laying horizontally on their side, they're going to shoot up, uh, suckers and sprouts right off of that trunk and they're going to go vertical. So what that's also going to do is create more cover. So a tree laying on its side, there's going to be all these little branches shooting straight up towards the sun again. First of all, that's deer food. Second of all, it's going to be more and more cover for, uh, you know, maybe you, you don't want your neighbors looking in, um, the deer can't see as far, etc. 
So I haven't done a ton of it, but I'm definitely going to. My Woods was select cut pretty good. So I have kind of a fairly open canopy, but it's not open enough. I can still, I don't have, if you walk in your woods and you look straight up, and if you see a bunch of trees, it's, in my opinion, a little bit too thick. If you can look up and see a big open canopy, you know, that's that's going to get that sunlight to the ground, most, most importantly. Is there an amount of hinge cutting or, I mean, I've seen... People that use it for, like you said, either blocking their entrance and exit routes. There's people that use it to block the neighbors from being able to see their entrance and exit routes. So they're using it as a, as a, as a shielding. And there's other people that are using it to create like a bed bedding area or like a safe haven, safety zone for the deer. Or funnels. Yep. They, yeah. they do that as well. They'll, they'll drop them together. To kind of create pinch point. Pinch point. Um, is there too much of that? So we had a listener, you know, who posted on Instagram, wanted to know, you know, is is there a mount that's that's too much? I wouldn't want to go and pinch cut your whole property. Well, yeah, understandably. But that being said, you know, if you've got 15 acres and you do the whole perimeter so that your neighbors can't see you, the deer can't see you. And you create a bedding area at the same time. Are you maybe letting the deer know too much, you know, that you're in there and you're working? Or are you saying, we're going to put this here, they're going to enjoy it. You know, we're creating a safe space. We're putting all this food, making this kind of sanctuary for you. Um, How much is too much, I guess? I think you can definitely do it too much. Um, I think you can do anything too much. I think that, uh, you know, per John's point there with the funnels and your point with the blocking, there are two types of hinge cuts. So first off, there's a hinge cut um, that you would make for deer cover and bedding, which you do about shoulder height, maybe neck height, you know, to, to a normal guy standing there. That's a little bit higher. Deer can move under that, can move around through it they feel a little more comfortable in there. I think you can make something too thick, that is a fact, and and the deer will probably avoid it. You have to be careful about that because you cut these trees down, it's not like they're going to regrow the next year. So that's kind of why I was always a little bit intimidated by it. But what I would recommend for that is I would just start slow. I would I would do it in the wintertime um, without the leaves on the tree. That way you see what you're getting. Once the leaves fall in November when you're hunting, you, you know how thick it's going to be. But I'll just do a little bit at a time. I do it in little pockets and see if the deer are loving it or not. Some of the guys I talked to on the podcast out in Pennsylvania, they swear the deer don't like the overhead cover. Uh, and what I mean by that is when you hinge a tree down on top of another tree, you kind of make a tent, if you will, or you make um, you make a little tunnel that you can walk under. Those guys out there swear that their deer don't like it. But here in Michigan, I know plenty of guys who tell you that's the way to do it because we're, you know, overpopulated with hunters and the pressure is huge and they need a place to hide. Um, and, and, but the other type of hinge cut would be a barrier hinge cut. And you do that a lot lower on the tree. You don't cut it up near your neck and shoulders. I believe you cut about your waist height. And that would be 
along your fence line or maybe to form a funnel or a pinch point that goes by your stand. You would not want a deer to be able to go under that. You kind of want to block them and do like a blockade or like a fence steering them or manipulating their movement essentially by your tree stand uh, or away from your neighbors. And that is also very effective. I mean, if I had bad neighbors, and luckily I don't, I would, if I had bad neighbors that were sitting on my property line and shooting into my ground, I would hinge every tree possible right on the fence line and make it clear that uh, on one side of the fence, you're going to have the neighbors who are pressuring their ground probably more than they should. And on your side of the fence, you're going to have this lush undergrowth thicket area that you're not walking through all the time with more food more cover, more sunlight, the deer are going to, they're going to figure out which part they like better. Uh, so just a couple different types of hinge cuts there. Basically for people who haven't, I mean, up until maybe two, three years ago, I hadn't even heard of it. And now it seems like yeah. you can't turn on social media or look and open a magazine that has to do with any sort of habitat management without seeing hinge cutting and so I think you're right. I think the fact that they're not going to regenerate and and what size trees are these? I mean, they're you're doing like maybe like three four inch diameter trees at the max, right? You're not doing hundred year old oaks or something like that. Oh no, um, you want to take out the biggest canopy trees you can. I mean, if, if so, it depends on what your goals are. Let me take take that back a little bit. If you want to grow mature forests. So 20 years from now, you can have loggers in there and make some money. That's one thing. I bought this 15 acres to hunt deer on. So my goal is all for deer. And that would include hinging a large tree that blocks up a ton of sunlight. Um, Now, I don't know. I have kind of a love for oak trees, so I might not hinge a 100-year-old oak. (laughs) You know, I just, I like sitting in them and hunting out of them, but... Yeah, I mean, you want to hinge anything from 3, 4 inches. Usually, like, 6 to 12 is is a good tree to hinge just because when they fall, they're not going to have so much momentum that they're going to snap off the root. You can hinge some of those those big trees. When they hit the ground, that back end that's connected to the stump has such force behind it. I mean, you want to get out of the way. That thing can buck up and break right off the stump, even if you try to hinge it. So it's kind of tough. Uh, your your main trees, like you mentioned, are going to be uh, you know, a little smaller. Three, four-inch trees are great trees to practice on. I've done it with a handsaw. Then um, you can move, you know, as you get more comfortable, move on a little more to, to something bigger. But I know, like you said, YouTube's blown up with hinge cutting. We've talked about it 10, 12 times on the podcast already. Uh, it's kind of a controversial subject, but the benefits... As long as you do it carefully and don't go in there and cut your whole woods down, as long as you do it um, incrementally, I think the benefits outweigh the the cons, if you will. I mean, you're like said you're opening up the canopy. That that native seed bed in your dirt is going to shoot up. It's all deer food now. It's all on the ground, under four foot. Everything is within the deer's reach. More cover. Uh, and it's just. If I didn't have a swamp next to me with 300 acres or two to 300 acres worth of bedding, I'd probably be doing more of it. Um, I just don't really have to at this stage yet. So, hinge cutting is 
in your plan. Um, you're creating food and destination areas uh, for the deer. Are you doing any, you said you're doing some shielding with the willows. Um, are you doing anything else on your property here to, to, to maximize the deer, your deer harvest or your deer population? Yeah, so I guess with with the hinging, what my goal would be is, for, so there's a swamp way in the back, and then I have my food plot way in the front. I would like to make pathways, if you will, deer trails that go from the bedding to the food. And if you hinge alongside of those pathways, perpendicular, you follow the trees or follow the trees to the left and the right, and the deer goes front and back, that will encourage the deer to walk down that trail. Now, especially if you put a little clover, a little chicory on that trail, you have a little winding food plot, the deer can can run left or right if it wants to alongside those hinge cuts and get out of there. It doesn't feel too too pressured. That's kind of the the end game of my plan uh, where I would personally use hinge cutting would be, um, you know, kind of like John said, like steer them. Steer them down the trail, maybe make it real thick over here, a little bit less thick here, and, and they kind of come down through that trail. That's your tree stand. Um, everything else I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing everything I can to, to make my property better than my neighbors. I, uh, I'm going to put in some, some little water holes this year. Um, I'm going to put in some mock, some more mock scrapes this year. Uh, they, they tore those up. And then my willows, they're what's called a hybrid willow. Uh, just Google that or, or um, eBay that. You'll find these little cuttings is what they call them. Um, these trees grow super, super fast. And they've kind of taken on some excitement in the deer world. They have their own rooting hormone, so you pretty much cut a branch off one of these trees. If you have a, an established tree or if you order cuttings, they pretty much send you cut branches. They send you sticks. And you just set them in water. The willows have their own rooting hormone in them already, and they'll sprout roots right out the bottom of the stick that is underwater, or the branch that is underwater. So you say you got your your sticks that are four inches underwater, well, four inches and below, they'll shoot out roots automatically. What you do is you just, you, you plant those, and they grow up very fast. They grow a couple feet a year, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And what I'm using those for is so when I want to get from where I park my car past my food plot, which, like I said, is up front, back to the cover, back to where I'm trying to, kill the buck before he gets to the food and after he leaves the swamp. I'm sneaking by and behind these willows. So these things are going to grow up thick and tall and I'm going to be able to walk right by where the deer could be unnoticed. So it's a hybrid willow screen. I have a video of that on the Outdoor Devotion YouTube as well. Uh, And I tell you what, man, all I did was I took my ice fishing spud to talk about hillbilly. You take this thing and you just hit it in the ground. You make a hole. You shove the stick with the roots on it in the ground. You close it up with your feet and you move on. I did this, I think, 75 or 100 times. And uh, kind of like any tree planting, not all of them take, but I'm about 75% of 
and they're they're taking off. So hopefully next fall, maybe the fall after, uh, should be able to sneak right by them when they're leafed out and uh, be able to use that as a, another sort of screen, except that one will be permanent. Now, with that, that's, I don't know, I don't know how to say this, like, but is that like, where are those native? I mean, are you kind of like introducing an invasive species or anything like that? I mean, Good I just point. think about like w- one of the things that uh, my uncle has a property up in Hesperia and the autumn olive is like taking over everything. Like he has to go through and brush hog and I mean, it's like taking over all of his trails, all over everything. So um, when you're planting things, when you're talking about Egyptian grass and these willows and things like that, does that kind of like fall into in your mindset as well? No, I think that's, I love that question. Um, so so it does. Maybe not as much as it should for me yet because I'm still kind of new to this whole this whole thing, but I'm learning. That the habitat gurus that I've always followed will say, kill invasives, kill invasives, kill invasives. Autumn olive, kill it. You know, bush honeysuckle, kill it. Kill all these grasses that are not native warm season grasses. Kill them all. I would agree with that. I think that you want the native stuff growing. That's what the, that's what the habitat needs to be. It's what it was, and it's what the animals like. Now, these willows, they're from Australia, but they don't spread, well, as far as I know, they don't spread like autumn olive. Autumn olive spreads very, very bad and quickly. I'm pretty sure it's on every side of the highway everywhere I drive. And, uh, but, so the autumn olive, or I mean, I'm sorry, the hybrid willow, I've never heard anybody on any habitat site or anybody I've talked to call that an invasive. Now, it's not from here, so I'm not sure where that where the line is drawn for that. But, for instance, autumn olive. you guys like your autumn olive up there in Hesperia? Do you, I mean, he tries to kill it all, but and I know you should, but honestly, every time I've hunted around autumn olive, I, it's some of the best hunting I've seen. You know what I mean? Yeah, in where it is, it's... It, it wasn't a bad thing until I'd say in the last, like, three or four years, it's just become unruly. I mean, it's, it's too much, it's, yeah. It's just too much. And so it's it's moving, like I said, across the trails, and it's making... Okay, a, yeah. it, And it's, it's butted up to, um, like, a pine grove, and now, you know, where you would get these uh, mature pines up, and you would have the rows and all of that sort of thing, it's kind of moved its way through there inside of the rows. So moving through there, tracking a deer, any of that sort of thing is is becoming more and more problematic. True, but I bet the deer love it better than when the autumn olive wasn't there. You know, it's thick. It's it's my favorite thing in the world is thick brush. Like, if it's too thick to hunt in, that's where I'm going to hunt. It's Oh, I know autumn olive is invasive. You don't want it running through your pines. I definitely get that. And if you, I think I do it in the south a lot. If you, like, uh, take a row of pines out of a plantation, you know how it all fills in, mm-hmm. kind of real thick and underbrush, and you see it in some of the down south hunting shows, the deer just love that, you know. Um, like I said, autumn olive is an invasive. You don't want it, but, the deer, I mean, the deer love it. I don't think it has a... Uh, a real thermal cover help in the wintertime, 
Um, I have it on my property. I should probably kill it. I just haven't gotten around to it yet. I'm still kind of on the fence. But I think everybody should try to control invasives as a blanket statement. I think you just should. You know, they're not supposed to be here. Uh, there's better stuff you could have. That's kind of the way I look at it. I just haven't done it yet. Yes, I mean, I think we've kind of covered most of the things we wanted to get to here and a lot of the questions that the the listeners had. Um, but real quick, if you would, maybe the the one-minute version from the the soil test to the venison on the table um, for the new... <laughs> For for the new guy um, who's maybe thinking about doing a, a food plot, you know, this year, first year, we've got a, a month or so here, uh, at least in Michigan, before we're going to get to where you want to be putting your seeds in the ground. First timer, what are your recommendations for them with the, we'll say, lawnmower, weed whacker, and a rake type guy? Lawnmower, okay, no, it's, I like that. Um, I'm still at that stage. I may have some other stuff now, but I'm definitely still at that stage. I would I would go in and find a spot where you have sunlight. If you can make more sunlight, do it. But I would be careful because if you have a food plot and this nice open area in the woods, but you can't get to it in hunting season without busting every deer out of there, that's going to be more important than having a food plot. Uh, access is my number one tip to anybody and everybody. I stay out of my 15 acres until late October. I don't even hunt it at all. And that's hard to do to a guy who just got his first piece of ground and or pressured Michigan. It's, it's extremely hard to do, but it pays off because you don't pressure the deer. So if you have an area, make sure you can hunt it without blowing deer out. Make sure the wind is right. Make sure the access is right. Make sure when you get down, you're not spooking anything um, before you just go in there and make a food pot. Otherwise, you're going to do more damage than good. Now, say you found that spot and you have some open canopy above your head. Go in there and mow it down. I've used a weed whip. I've used that hand stickle thing. I've used my lawnmower. I actually broke my lawnmower last month couldn't cut my grass at home because I was trying to do a food plot. And, you know, I just, just whatever you got to do to cut that stuff down. I would then spray it with Roundup or glyphosate. Um, Rural King, Tractor Supply, they sell two and a half gallons of it or gallons of it. Get a little sprayer, even a pump, $10 pump sprayer from Home Depot would work. I would recommend maybe a backpack sprayer, get more longevity out of it. I would spray that stuff, you know, 10 days after you mow it. And, again, another 10 days or two weeks later, if you have the time. That way you're making sure everything's dead. And you're making sure that when you spread your seed, it's going to hit the dirt, nothing else. So then, you got dirt, right? You got dirt, you got sunlight. No weeds, no nothing. I would get a simple growing seed like winter rye buckwheat, oats, and maybe some clover, something that would even grow in the back of your pickup truck if you let it. Um, this stuff you won't be disappointed in. You, you throw it down, you broadcast it, follow the seed rate on the bags. Don't overseed. Uh, what I mean by that is don't put too much seed down for the size of pot you have. Your seed end up out 
you know, tries to compete with itself and, and uh, kind of ruins the whole thing. So plant according to the, the ratio, but throw down a nice seed like that. And if you can, pack it down before and after you seed. So definitely after, um, but we just started now doing before and after. You can do that with your feet. You can do that with your quad tires, your lawnmower tires, your truck tires. Just drive around until it's all packed down real hard. And then uh, then you pray for rain. And what will happen is after a couple nice rains, you will get some germination. And then, you know, you, you just watch it. And after a couple weeks, you'll see, all right, well, Everything's coming up pretty good except for here, here, and here. You know, you have some bare spots. It never works perfect. So what I would do is then take some more rye grain and winter wheat and go in there and overseed again. And now you're talking mid-September. So say you do the first steps we just talked about in mid to late August. Now you're in mid-September. Now you're overseeding or top dressing with rye grain and winter wheat. And then, again, I would do that one more time come October 1st. I know you want to be out of the woods. You want to keep your, your stuff from being pressured. But what you're doing now is you have, if you see it again in October, you see it in August, mid-September, and October. And now you have a food plot that has three different stages of growth in it. So you have stuff that's six weeks old, stuff that's four weeks old, stuff that's two weeks old, or you know, brand new by the time you start hunting it in October. And deer love fresh sprouts, fresh growth. So what you're doing there is you're giving them as much food as you can, different diverse stages of the plant age, and they're just eating it up. And I did that the very first time last year. And, I mean, I still consider myself fairly a rookie, and, I mean, the deer were loving it. I couldn't believe it. And... Just, I don't know, you just you just keep going in there, you keep going a little bit more, you're trying as much as you can, and it's not always going to work. You could seed, and then a flock of turkeys comes in and eats all your seed. I've had that happen. You could seed, and it doesn't rain. I've had that happen. It's it's all up to, to Mother Nature, but if you keep trying, and you keep overseeding with more rye and winter wheat, if you keep hitting that, you're going to fill in all the gaps, you're going to have young growth, and you're going to have a food plot. Um, and that stuff will grow in crummy soil. Uh, I, I didn't mention a soil test there. I'd like you to get one, but a lot of people skip them. Um, I, you know, keep keep overseeding with that rye and that wheat. And when I say rye, I mean rye grain, not rye grass. Rye grass is not for deer. Um, you might see that on a lot of your throw and grow bags in the store. That's because that stuff grows everywhere. But deer like rye grain, so it's just a little note there but that's what i'd recommend with that um some seeds you can look into once they get established maybe hitting them with a quick you know triple 19 fertilizer or or something like that depending on what your soil does but you don't want to burn them up either so be careful with that i don't know hopefully i answered that for you yeah i think that's great because that's you know definitely something that i've never done is the overseeding and I know they talk about that with your lawns and, and all sorts of things, uh, you know, with that. But with the food plot, I look at it as throw and grow and forget it, not throw and grow and throw yeah. again and throw again. Um, yeah. So it doesn't 
it doesn't necessarily um, doesn't register with me that that's the way that you would do it. And if you're you have a property that's close or you know it's it's where you live, where it's not going to be you know a seven hour drive to go up there and throw another bag of seed over top of it or or whatever. I think it's certainly great great information. Well, for for in your case, then I would add rye grain to your seed mix when you plant the one time you're there is what I would do there. Okay. Just because it it will most likely sprout and um, what that also does, what that rye grain does. So one more thing, I planted the clover last fall in uh, about Labor Day weekend and we overseeded with rye grain. And the rye shoots up, and clover takes a little while to get established. It, once it sprouts, it's very, very tiny, and it just takes a little while. So what that rye does is it works as a, a nurse crop or a cover crop. The deer focus on the rye. They don't focus on the clover. It gives the clover a chance to establish. So no matter what you're planting, if you can throw a little cover crop in there um, to deer life, it can help some of those younger plants establish better. Well, Jared, I think that this has been very helpful for me and I think for our listeners and uh, for, you know, anyone that, you know, stumbles across this that's thinking about uh, maybe trying a a food plot or anyone who's been listening to this just kind of waiting for us to talk about something whitetail related. Um, I think this has been a a breath of fresh air for, for them for sure. But I'd like to, you know, catch up with you maybe after the season and kind of see how all of the the habitat work that you did worked out. Um, so I'd like to, you know, kind of put that out there right now that I'd like to talk to you again, and you can kind of let everyone know how everything uh, worked out for you, if that's something you'd, you'd be willing to do. And then where can people find your podcast and, and all that? We kind of talked about it before we started uh, on here uh, with the social media stuff. Uh, you know where can they find you, and, and how can they listen if they're if they're diving a little bit deeper into into habitat management? Hey, no, I I appreciate you uh, having me on. I'd love to talk with you after the season. Uh, hopefully, you're holding some elk antlers, and I got a nice <laughs> buck in my hands. That'd be nice. Yeah, I, I'm passionate about this stuff. So if I talk your ear off, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, but this what happens sometimes. Uh, I'd love to talk more to the listeners about what we do. Uh, we have the the new venture is the Habitat Podcast. Very simple, exactly what it what it sounds like. We're just a couple guys trying to learn uh, more about what we talked about tonight. We're just trying to become better habitat managers, and you can find us at habitatpodcast.com. If you have an iPhone with a podcast app, you can search us on there under the Habitat Podcast. Uh, we're on Stitcher. Facebook slash Habitat Podcast. That's where we probably put more of our pictures and whatnot, uh, where you can really see what we're doing because the podcast will get you to listen to us. And that's, that's taken off so far. Uh, we're really excited about it and get a lot of good feedback. I think there's just a lot of people out there who want to do something to improve their hunting, especially in a place like Michigan, where we have all this pressure and all these new CWD requirements coming up and you got to put everything in your favor that you can. So that's kind of what we're trying to do there. If you like to watch bow hunting at all, we film a lot of our hunts on Outdoor Devotion. That's uh, 
that's the LLC we fired up a while back. Um, kind of just try to record how we go through the season and, and show you some real self-filmed hunting. And then uh, lastly but not least, uh, my friends and I over at Michigan Whitetail Pursuit. Now, that's something I looked up to for years before I started filming. Um, the guys over there, so happy to be a part of the part of that group. A bunch of good people. Just real Michigan hunting. Females, youth, uh, veterans, we do all kinds of hunts on there. And um, you can see about, I think, three of my hunts, three of my deer from last year are all are all up on their web show as well. So and then I'm, I'm Jared Michael on Facebook. Just look me up. If you have any questions, I'd be happy to talk to anybody. Shoot me a message. I, like I said, my wife's always wondering who I'm texting about deer tonight. So, well, I think that's about all we got tonight. Um, so, thanks for being on here, and for all the listeners out there, you know, stay tuned. We'll be uh, whitetail hunting soon, uh, but we just got to get through this whole elk phase we're going through right now. So, um, yeah, good luck on your elk hunt. You guys are really getting after <laughs> it with all your your gear reviews and your. I mean, the underwear discussion last episode <laughs> was just out of this world. <laughs> well, yeah, this the could be the wool underwear podcast where we had that discussion <laughs> a couple different times with a couple different guests. So um, certainly just trying to get as much information out there, above the belt, below the belt, everything, <laughs> everything we can for the listeners. Um, but, yeah, everybody stay tuned, and uh, we'll be back with you before you know it. So thanks for listening. See ya. Well, another one down, guys. Thanks so much for listening. Hopefully I didn't talk your ear off too bad in that one. Um, I had a good time with those guys. It's great meeting other people. You know, have the same passion I do when it comes to the outdoors. And uh, just just really glad to make a couple new friends. Um, I want to thank everybody for your feedback online. I have a couple new reviews on iTunes on the podcast app. Uh, Louisiana Trad Hunter. So it's a great podcast for anyone wanting to improve the habitat in their hunting area. Now, Will, I am sending you a decal, my friend, so thanks for that nice review. And I have another one on here from Joe B. Great show. Really enjoy listening to the people who do and enjoy the same things I do on my own property here in southern Indiana. Joe, get a hold of me. I'm going to send you a decal for that nice review, my friend. I uh, really appreciate you coming on here. And uh, I just want to thank everybody else for listening. We are going to offer some 100% cotton t-shirts on Facebook. I'll launch that now. I had to get one in the mail to make sure I approved before I uh, I launched it. They look pretty good. Uh, the decals are available online as well. But more importantly, if you want to listen to more podcasts from us, go to HabitatPodcast.com. We're also on Stitcher Radio Podbean, um, whatever other podcast places you can listen. We're probably on there. Um, Apple iTunes, every iPhone has a podcast app, a little purple icon. You can just search Habitat or Habitat Podcast on there and we'll pop up. Please subscribe. And uh, you know what, guys? Thanks again. Feel free to reach out anytime. Leave me some feedback on what's going on. And uh, love to see what you guys are doing uh, this time of year in your neck of the woods. So hit us up on Facebook dot com slash habitat podcast post some pictures up and uh we'll keep in touch guys talk again soon <laughs>